gases or vomiting and possible aspiration of this material into the airway is a potential emergency during general anesthesia or deep sedation. And welcome to Oral Max Facts. I am Ruthie Patel, here with Dr. Jimmy Harper to talk about anesthesia complications and management. If you haven't had a chance to listen to our talks on anesthesia complication, please go back and listen to them as you'll find that they're extremely helpful in your daily practice, especially for all maxillofacial surgeons. So today's topic, as you have already guessed, is emesis aspiration. Just want to clarify that we are not discussing the management of post-operative nausea and vomiting, although some of the risk factors and preventive measures can be the same. What we are discussing today is what happens when those gastric contents end up in the lungs. So as always, we'll first discuss the definition, then we'll look at some of the risk factors and guidelines, and then we'll discuss management strategies. Then we'll end with a case discussion. So Dr. Harper, thank you for joining us today again. You're welcome. Glad to be here. With this topic, Mendelssohn uh, originally published some articles in 1950 or 46. He was looking at um, obstetric patients, and he reported on 66 uh, patients who aspirated vomitus during uh, anesthesia. And the patients developed cyanosis and respiratory distress, uh, all within about two hours of aspiration. And he kind of described this aspiration pneumonitis. And all except uh, two patients who had complete air airway obstruction from their aspirated particles according to his, his articles, uh, recovered within about 24 to 36 hours and had complete radiographic resolution. So because of, of his paper, it's, it's often referred to um, as uh, Mendelssohn syndrome. Uh, every old-timer oral surgeon has, has got a coffee and donut story. Mine was uh, Chinese food and bamboo shoots. And so it's something that, that we need to have a, a high index of suspicion. And I, th I think when we start, first of all, we probably ought to have some definitions of what mm -hmm. we're talking about with emesis versus um, reflux or, or regurgitation. And emesis uh, is the medical term for vomiting, obviously. Uh, and emesis is a reflex, and so there's muscular action involved with it. So it's an active mm -hmm. process, and it involves a, some stimuli, whether it's uh, chemical, whether it's uh, uh, infectious, uh, but it stimulates the brain to trigger a, a reflex that we have uh, this contraction of these abdominal muscles, of our uh, diaphragm, of our accessory muscles to force uh, food out of the abdomen or out of the stomach. And so we need to generate this force to flush things out and empty the bowel contents through the mouth and nose. Uh, vomiting itself rarely occurs during deep sedation general anesthesia. Uh, why is that? It's because uh, the act of vomiting requires forceful contraction of muscles. And what do we do with our general anesthesia or deep sedation is we relax those muscles. So we kind of take that reflex away. Right. Uh, regurgitation, on the other hand, is quiet and it's a kind of it's a passive process. So it doesn't require muscular action, but there's mm -hmm. some force uh, either uh, due to um, increased abdominal pressure or to a weakened or de decreased tone to uh, the esophageal sphincter. And so as we think about increased gastric pressure, think about, for instance, if you take a rag valve mask and you overinflate it, you overpressurize it and you inflate the stomach, you're going to build up pressure and eventually that's going to try to relieve itself. It may be due to delayed gastric emptying, so people who eat a normal meal, but mm -hmm. they have a delayed clearance. Anything that causes gastroparesis can put patients at increased risk. And classically, you think about diabetes mellitus, think about bowel obstructions as, mm -hmm. as things that uh, can lead to a buildup of fluids and, and solids in the stomach uh, may build up pressure. 
and then procedures that uh, increase uh, pressure on the uh, gastric contents, so splitting them during bowel surgery and, and pushing on the bowel. If you're doing endoscopic surgery, you're filling the bowel with uh, carbon dioxide. And then think about uh, your obese patient, you lay them back flat, and mm-hmm. the abdominal constant starts to push on the stomach. Uh, same thing with a uh, gravid uterus, uh, where the fetus sits on the stomach and starts to mm-hmm. pressure. All those things can increase the pressure. And so it creates this passive process where the fluids start to leak up. Aspiration uh, itself is the soiling of the airway by materials that aren't supposed to be there. Uh, in the case of emesis or regurgitations, uh, it's the contents that come from the stomach. Mm-hmm. During deep sedation and general anesthesia, it's more likely that aspiration is going to be due to regurgitation rather than emesis. With the um, aspiration material in the airway, it's a potential airway emergency. It's one of those things that uh, we always worry about. It can trigger bronchospasm, which we right. talked about in mm-hmm. previous sessions, just from the irritating effects of gastric acids. And how often does it happen? Uh, it depends on who you read, but the incidence has been reported to be anywhere from about 1 in 10,000 to as high as 1 in 2,000 cases. And it, from the literature, somewhere between 9 and 10% of all um, aspirations result in fatality. Uh, so it's a significant problem when it occurs. Although possible, the aspiration of vomitus is unlikely during minimal to moderate sedation, right? By yeah, definition. And, and, and by definition, if we're doing light sedation, you know, we're maintaining those protective reflexes. So if somebody's going to experience uh, emesis during light sedation, what's going to happen is more likely they're going to laryngospasm and trying mm-hmm. to protect their airway, especially if they're in kind of that stage two anesthesia. So much less likely. If you have large volumes of fluid, yes, it's possible that you're going to aspirate right. it. But, but by definition, the protective reflexes should be intact, and, and mm-hmm. that should be much less of an issue. You know, when does it occur? Probably more than half of the cases occur during induction of anesthesia, mm-hmm. according to the literature. Uh, although there, there are cases of, of emesis or regurgitation occurring during maintenance, uh, as well as emergence from anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And so you have to maintain a high index of suspicion, especially when we're dealing with open airways, anesthesia technique during that procedure. You just have to, if you've got somebody who's starting to cough, mm-hmm. you need to look at that airway, make sure it's suctioning out, make sure that we don't have regurgitation occurring. Mm-hmm. And what are the consequences of aspirational gastric contents? So there are kind of three things that happen. First of all, if you aspirate gas material, particulate matters can actually cause, obstruct the airway, uh, which can lead to a collapse of the airway's distal obstruction, so you get atelectasis. Aspiration, pneumonitis, is probably the most common thing that happens when you're aspirating these acids. Mm-hmm. These acids uh, lead to a chemical burn in the uh, tracheobronchial tree and the lung parenchyma. And then thirdly, uh, if you aspirate bacteria, especially from the oral cavity, nasal pharynx, mm-hmm. uh, you can get a super infection or you can develop an aspiration pneumonia as a result of aspirating those gastric contents. And what is aspiration pneumonitis? Aspiration pneumonitis is basically the consequences resulting from the entry of abnormal fluid, particulate materials, and secretions into the lower airway, which results in an inflammatory response, and you get transudative fluids into the lungs, you get chemical burns, you get uh, the things that we talked about before. Right. And aspiration doesn't always lead to pneumonitis, right? There are three requirements in order for that to happen. That's correct. So if somebody um, is going to be able to aspirate something into their airway, first of all, they have to have some sort of compromise in their normal defenses that allow you to keep things out of your lungs. So normally we have that glottic closure. Something goes into our airways and I try to cough it out and our, our normal clearing mechanisms. And so if you think about things that we do, deep anesthesia, 
with an unprotected airway, certainly right. can with depress those reflexes. Patients with neurologic injury or neurologic disease can uh, have depressed reflexes, can increase mm-hmm. their risk for aspiration. Secondly, we need a mechanism for this passive release of the gastric contents. And, and as we talked before, we're talking about higher gastric pressures, delayed gastric emptying, mm-hmm. decreased esophageal sphincter tone, inadequate period of fasting, and possibly patient uh, position. Think about lithotomy, think about Kandelenburg position. That's mm-hmm. going to encourage uh, things to affect the uh, esophageal sphincter. And thirdly, what do we aspirate? If we're thinking about the gastric materials that we aspirate, the more acidic it is, Mm -hmm. uh, and the classic pH has been described as a pH of less than Mm 2.5, the volume that you aspirate, uh, and class, there's a milligram per kilogram volume, but typically the amount in your average adult, if more than 25 cc's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then whether it's liquids versus chunks. Uh, solids obviously can lead to mechanical obstruction of the airway, uh, and those things will lead to that aspiration pneumonitis. Mm-hmm. And this can progress to acute respiratory distress. Absolutely. Uh, because of the inflammatory response, it can mm-hmm. develop uh, ARDS. And if they aspirate bacteria along with that, then that can become a secondary problem where they either end up with a, uh, a super infection or they end up with a, essentially a bacterial pneumonia. Right. And most pneumonia arise from aspiration of bugs from oral cavity or Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So let's say once we have recognized these risk factors, how do we go about preventing aspiration from happening? So if if we think about the three things with Mendelssohn's triad, the first thing we think about is we want to try to reduce the chunks or what it, what is actually in the stomach. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, one of the ways we do that is we think about NPO status. In the American Society of Anesthesiologists have come up with some uh, recommendations on um, fasting prior to a, an elective procedure. So first of all, uh, clear liquids, uh, they recommend that uh, abstain from uh, clear liquids uh, for two hours prior to surgery. Right. Uh, so allowed to have clear liquids up to uh, two hours prior to a procedure. Mm-hmm. And some of the clear liquids would be water, fruit juice, without pulp, or carbonated beverages, clear tea. And the surprising one is black coffee, which people think is... Yeah. Okay, not okay, but it's and still a clear liquid. It's, and it's it's yeah, it's listed as a clear liquid, you know, as yeah. long as you don't put your cream in it, uh, yeah. then then probably okay. And then with aspiration, volume of, of the liquid ingested, uh, if, if we think about these clear liquids, uh, mm-hmm. volume is less important than what type of liquid that we're ingesting. So if somebody right. had orange juice with pulp in it, we're bringing mechanical materials, foreign bodies into the lung, they're going to be harder for the body to clear. Mm-hmm. So Having clear liquids ahead of time, there may actually be some benefit of uh, taking clear liquids up to two hours, and, and there are some reports that it may actually improve gastric emptying, mm-hmm. uh, so there's not stuff laying around in the stomach, which would be beneficial. And certainly when you're dealing with kids, they're going to be less cranky if they've right, had something yeah. with a little bit of carbohydrate in it uh, prior to the surgery. Mm-hmm. And then they talk about breast milk usually clears within about four hours. Infant formula non-human milk, a little bit longer, about six hours, mm-hmm. uh, NPO, and then uh, light uh, a light meal, tea and toast, not butter on your toast, but uh, just dry toast, mm-hmm. uh, probably six hours of fasting, and then a regular meal, at least eight hours. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you have to think about uh, the, the gui- these are guidelines and that fasting amount of time doesn't guarantee that stomach can be em- empty or the, ga- the gastric contents are, are going to be less acidic. And uh, reports of uh, regurgitation or undigested food in, in patients who have stayed for solids for, for eight hours uh, still occurs. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I think when we think about NPO, most of the oral surgeons I talk to, at least us all the time, there's probably many of us adhere to the uh, by mouth after midnight guidelines. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the concern always is expressed is, you know, what's a clear liquid? Even though you explain this to a patient, you start giving them options, and then all of a sudden they start stretching those options a little bit. <laughs> it was okay to have coffee. Well, probably a little cream's not going to be hurt, right? And then if I can dump my donut and my coffee, <laughs> then that makes it kind of Toasty. Okay. So, so patients tend to stretch those a little bit. And, and even that, uh, if they're NPO, even more than eight hours, I had a case of when I was a resident as, a, as an intern, a patient who, for his last meal, decided to eat a, uh, have an extra large pizza brought to his room. Uh, it was when patients were admitted the night before and about 11 o'clock, and, and he ate the entire uh, extra large pizza, finished it by 11.59. Uh, and the next day in the recovery room started uh, bringing up uh, some of that pizza that was undigested, and that made for some quick scrambling uh, mm-hmm. in the recovery room to cut him out of IMF and uh, uh, suction him out. So, uh, and you know, patients, even though we give them these guidelines, aren't always compliant. I had a patient who, who when he woke up from having his wisdom teeth out, told me, "See, I told you nothing was going to happen if I ate breakfast." And he'd <laughs> eat before he'd come in. He just told me that he didn't. Uh, yeah. So patients don't always follow those guidelines. And and even so, most patients will follow those guidelines. And if we don't make them wait too long, uh, they tolerate being NPO past midnight uh, reasonably well. Right. It's the patients who work all day and, and have to get this done late in the day, you know, those are the ones that we need to think about to go mm-hmm. on that clear liquids up to two hours prior. And they say there could be some beneficial effects for that. Another interesting thing is that the emergency room physicians have, have altered their guidelines uh, for MPO status and no longer require patients to be MPO prior to procedure sedations. That's kind of that's the latest recommendation from ASAP guidelines on this particular topic. You know, there are benefits and risks to everything that we do, mm-hmm. and I think it's important to know those risks and to try to minimize where we can. So from my personal standpoint uh, and from what I know of the history, uh, but there's, there can be significant mortality associated with aspiration. Right. Most of the things we're talking about are elective procedures, and, mm-hmm. and whereas with emergency room physicians, we're dealing with people who are just falling out of a tree or been in a car accident, and they don't have that luxury of saying, come back uh, tomorrow, MPO. Yeah. But I think that if you're going to put a patient to sleep who's not MPO, then you have to prepare for mm-hmm. uh, the potential consequences, and there's some things that you can do uh, to help minimize those risks. Yeah. And especially because we don't really have separate set of guidelines for patients that we consider high risk of Absolutely. aspiration. So we may as well stick to the guidelines so we know. Um, so what else can we do? So there are, there are a number of things that, that as we continue to think about mental since triad. So one of the things is, is if we think we, if we can clear out the things in the stomach, uh, we can do that pharmacologically. We can use a, a drug like metacopamide or Reglan, given through an IV, tend to over one to two minutes, and we give it about 30 minutes prior to induction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has an effect to increase peristalsis and, and, mm-hmm. and increase the transit time that food sits in the stomach, so that sort of will move things along more quickly. You have to, with this drug, as, as with any drug, you have to know what the side effects are. There happens to be a black box warning in this one for mm-hmm. targeted dyskinesias. One dose, probably not a major issue, but there is an increased risk of uh, neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So right. patients who are on antipsychotic drugs, you, know, mm-hmm. you may want to be very cautious of not, not use it at all. And also patients uh, who are taking Parkinson's medications, mm-hmm. there may be some interference with those drugs uh, uh, that we can aggravate their Parkinson's syndrome. So, uh, uh, so again, we need to, to know our medications that we're using. 
so so we can try to get move things out of the GI tract a little more quickly. Okay. Uh, second, uh, we know that acidity plays a role in this, uh, so we can try to do some things to reduce uh, acidity. So we can use the H2 receptors such as vimidine uh, uh, or cimetidine, and they're going to block the uh, H2 receptors in the parietal cell, decreasing acid production. Uh, and then uh, again. Known side effects, uh, cimetidine especially okay. interferes with the cytochrome P450 system. So there are a whole bunch of drugs that it's going to increase the serum levels of. So you need to know uh, if you're going to use that drug. Uh, you, know, you need to know what those drug interactions are right. ahead of time. Yeah, come up on boards all the time. <laughs> and then the last thing is is that uh, you can think about using proton pump inhibitors. Uh, those are the drugs that in in Eprazol. Uh, uh, Drugs that uh, are going to block the release of hydrogen ions by the parietal cells in the stomach. So mm-hmm. these things can uh, help decrease the production of acids in the stomach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we can try to neutralize the acids that are already there. If you're going to do that, you want to use a non-particulate uh, antacid such right. as uh, a sodium citrate. Again, we want to avoid uh, putting chunks into the uh, into the stomach so that they're not going to aspirate those in the lungs. In the early years of my career, this approach was used pretty much for everybody who went to the ER. We got all these drugs. Uh, And because of our side effect with all medications, Uh and there are costs associated with all medications, there was planning to try to get these drugs on board 30 Mm -hmm. to 60 minutes ahead of time to get it done, to not get done. So it it sort of complicates the management. So patients who who are at low risk, the the current guidelines from the uh, ASA uh, says that this routine practice is not recommended mm-hmm. and, and to be uh, used for select patients who, who may be at high risk for aspiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's important to have these medications handy for patients that recognize high risk even in your, in your office for yeah. elective procedures, especially if you have uh, you know, obese population or diabetic population. So um, speaking of which, who are the patients at high risk of pulmonary aspiration? So, so we've got kind of a list here of, of folks who are at risk for aspiration, not just from anesthesia, but from, from all causes. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything that reduces, reduces the level of consciousness. So right. if you think about alcoholics, you think about uh, uh, illicit drug abusers, you know, those folks are at risk for aspiration. Mm-hmm. You think about um, the drugs that we use for general anesthesia. We think about uh, patients who had seizures, all those things uh, mm-hmm. can put patients at risk for aspiration. And some of those folks we have to deal with because of trauma-related issues associated. And so those folks should actually come to see us who have already aspirated even before uh, general anesthesia. But, but certainly those are folks that we need to think about. Uh, neurologic causes of uh, dysphagia can lead to uh, increased risk of aspiration. And then think about uh, upper uh, gastrointestinal uh, tract disorders, uh, anything in the esophageal diseases that are going to alter sphincter tone. Surgery on the upper airway esophagus, patients with a history of gastric reflux, or mm-hmm. patients with increased risk. Uh, a lot of those folks would already be on medications to reduce uh, uh, the, the reflux, mm-hmm. and, and we want to continue those medications during the perioperative period of the pain. And then things that disrupt the, either the glottic closure uh, or the cardiac sphincter, uh, such as tracheostomy, intertracheal intubation, even though the tube's in place, doesn't necessarily mean you can okay. aspirate around the tube, especially if the club be- cup becomes punctured, deflated. Uh, patients who are uh, having upper endoscopy done put a feeding tube down or an NG tube down, while the NG tube will drain the, uh, the gastric contents. If it's not hooked up the wall, uh, they can certainly uh, get a leakage around it and, and aspirate from the reflux. And then, um, 
think about uh, patients with protracted vomiting, you know, pregnant large volumes, uh, even uh, uh, though they're not uh, tended, they can aspirate just because they're trying to catch their breath in between, can bring right. material into the lungs. Patients with a feeding gastrostomy, we talked about position already, mm -hmm. head down. Pregnant patients, diabetic patients, uh, right. we talked about increased uh, uh, gastric pressure. So uh, a number of uh, causes of uh, can increase the risk of, of, of reflux and aspiration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty comprehensive list. So what is the clinical significance of pulmonary aspiration during perioperative periods? So you know, the biggest risk is we're going to develop this pneumonitis that may progress to ARDS mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, and that we can also develop significant airway obstruction, significant bronchospasm. In uh, 1993, Warner published a study in anesthesiology, and they looked at patients who had emesis uh, but didn't show uh, any signs or symptoms of pulmonary aspiration, such as cough, wheeze, uh, decreased oxygen hatch, or radiographic abnormalities within two hours of aspirations. And they had uh, no pulmonary complications or uh, required respiratory support or ICU care if they didn't develop those signs and symptoms within about two hours. Uh, however, the patients who developed comp uh, pulmonary uh, symptoms within about two hours of aspiration and required um, uh, ICU care or support, uh, they reported three out of the six patients uh, that required mechanical ventilation died uh, within uh, mm -hmm. 24 hours. Uh, uh, so it can be a significant problem. Right. So essentially what we take away from the study is that observe the patients for two hours if you if they did aspirate for any signs of pulmonary complications. Right. And if they required mechanical ventilation for greater than 24 hours, it could be bad news. Yes. So now that you're familiar with complications of risk factors for aspiration emesis, can we talk about management sure. of um, aspiration during oscillation or general anesthesia in the operating room? So, so our goal is to limit the amount of soaring of the airway. Mm -hmm. uh, we're trying to keep the amount of stuff going down into the airway to a minimum. We're trying to avoid that uh, greater than 25 ml. We're trying to avoid those chunks. Right. Um, so, you know, we're talking about patients who are sedated or under general anesthesia patient may or may not be responsive to verbal commands. So first thing we want to do is turn up the O2, uh, grab the suction, and those kind of happen simultaneously. And you know, if we're doing a surgical procedure, most of the time we don't have a throat suction on, so we need to change to a throat suction, a Yankauer suction. There is a suction called a Ducanto suction catheter, which is a disposable suction. I had the opportunity in, in a simulation course to use uh, the Ducanto uh, a suction catheter. And basically it's a larger bore. It's designed to pick up those chunks, and there's actually a okay. technique that uh, they teach in the airway course. If you've got somebody who's got blood or got emesis coming up and up and you can't see the airway of, of how to use that to suction and to position it such that it'll clear the airway for you. So it's something that to, to like think about adding to your kits. Yeah. With responsive patients, you know, airway reflexes are more likely to be intact, so less likely to aspirate. And if they do, it's probably going to be less volume. Mm -hmm. They're going to start to cough. They're going to try to clear that on their own, mm -hmm. encouraging the cough. Uh, those folks, we either keep them in an upright position, again, uh, thinking mm -hmm. about uh, uh, esophageal gastric pressures, uh, encourage the patient to cough. Uh, if we feel if the patient feels like we need to lie down, we want to put them in a recovery position, preferably right side down, mm -hmm. uh, and encourage them to cough and monitor uh, okay. to make sure that... Uh, they, if they, they haven't developed any of the signs of, of aspiration that mm -hmm. uh, may make us think that we need to put them, uh, send them for a uh, hospital ride, for an ambulance ride to be evaluated. 
So if uh, we've got an attended patient, uh, you know, we may need to suction the airway, we may need to rescue the airway. Uh, mm -hmm. So we have to be ready to do that. You know, if there's any evidence of active or passive regurgitation, uh, first thing we need to do uh, during or after suction is reposition the patient. So we want to head down and we want them on the uh, right side if we can roll them to the right side. Uh, again, we're trying to preserve lung tissue. So we're turning them on the right side. We're putting that position at right uh, main stem bronchus in a dependent position. It's a straighter um, uh, bronchus. Uh, it's mm -hmm. also a larger bronchus. So more likely things are going to go down that uh, bronchus and, and uh, to um, uh, uh, protect that left uh, bronchus and the left mm -hmm. lung. And uh, we put them in Tendelenburg because we're going to head down because we're trying to get things to bypass the airway inlet mm -hmm. uh, and and be able to protect that airway. Uh, so we'll have our suction available, hopefully collect that. So we immediately want to remove all the, the, the debris that's coming up. We want to suction out the pharynx, the mm -hmm. mouth. If we've got uh, a throat pack in, obviously we're going to clear that out. We're going to pack off our wounds so we don't complicate the volume mm -hmm. of stuff that we're dealing with. If the regurgitation is ongoing, think about trying to do some cricoid pressure, the solid right. mover, to kind of slow that down so that we can sort of get a, mm -hmm. uh, a handle on the fluids that are coming up and clear the, the airway the best we can. We administer high flow oxygen mm -hmm. uh, because oxygen gets in, we want to get as much as we can uh, because we don't know how compromised the airway is going to be. We want to monitor, monitor uh, their O2 saturation, auscultate uh, for altered breath sounds, listen for wheezing, mm -hmm. we want to listen for crackles. If no evidence of aspiration, you know, if, are we at a point where we can stop and then monitor the patient? Uh, is it a point where we have to suture, we have to or we mm -hmm. get the tooth halfway out? Uh, yeah. We have to make some decisions there based on what, how the patient's doing. Mm -hmm. And so, again, it's that do we live to fight another day or do we uh, <laughs> continue to fight? And, and if they've had significant regurgitation, you know, it's probably time to call it quits. Uh, any evidence of aspiration, then we need to monitor them. We need to... Um, Think about bronchospasm uh, algorithm because of with, with aspiration, mm -hmm. uh, obviously going to irritate the airway and they trigger bronchospasm. Right. And now we're we're thinking about do we need to get out our beta tube agonist uh, mm -hmm. uh, drugs and, and kind of follow that protocol. Uh, so if if they're aspirated, first of all, can we get them out of that deeper plane of anesthesia because we want to encourage them to breathe, to cough, to okay. clear their own airway? So can we reverse? Medications on board, so we think about them as well. We think about um, Narcan to um, to reverse those folks. Mm -hmm. If we've got NG tube, think about putting an NG tube in to decompress them right. further. Uh, obviously, we can call in the cavalry because if this patient is aspirated, they're probably going to need to go to the hospital and, mm -hmm. and be evaluated or observed. With evidence of somebody who's obtunded, and especially if we're starting to hear airway signs, we may want to think about. Uh, can, uh, putting the tube in, intubating them to correct the airway from further aspiration, mm -hmm. and also it gives us the opportunity to suction down the intracranial tube to right. uh, clear any, any uh, fluid or aspirate out if we can with suction. Uh, one of the risks, that we, as we're starting to support the airway, we need to think about bag valve mask. Mm -hmm. uh, if they're still bringing stuff up, we may help it along by, by putting right. higher pressures. We may distend the stomach, encourage mm -hmm. more uh, regurgitation to occur. So uh, if we're thinking about that we have to bag valve mask and consider selling maneuver to try to support the airway. Mm -hmm. Watch your airway pressures as you're squeezing the bag so that we don't uh, create excessive pressure. Well, we're intubating. Uh, again, we may have 
before, during, and after. We may have to continue. They continue to bring up bombers who want to push in the airway or suction okay. the, the pharynx anyways because we can, as we talked before, you can get leakage around the tube and make an additional, uh, aspirate additional materials even though we've got an inflated cup. As we're intubating, again, you need to be ready with suction and mm-hmm. uh, you may have large volumes to deal with depending on uh, how much gastric contents this patient has. So right. uh, you need to be ready for that. Uh, you're going to want to, if we decide, made the decision we need to intubate this patient, we're talking mm-hmm. about rapid sequence induction. We probably don't have the time to do the three minutes of pre-oxygenation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it may be a rapid sequence induction. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we have to be prepared that uh, we do this quickly. You know, do you look at other airway uh, uh, protected devices? The LMA, there is an LMA that you, uh, this LMA prosia that you can put mm-hmm. an NG tube down. Uh, it's probably not as good as having an endotracheal tube in the airway. Right. Uh, and, and you can still uh, aspirate around uh, those types of uh, supraglottic devices. So uh, you just have to uh, mm-hmm. think about that. Uh, but if you have difficulty intubating that patient, that may be a backup, uh, but it's not as good as getting the tracheal tube in. You know, in select patients, again, you're not going to do this in the office, uh, but if you suspect that they've aspirated uh, particulate matter, there are lots of chunks coming up, bronchoscopy may be indicated. Uh, right. And again, that's a little bit controversial uh, for just aspiration with chemical pneumonitis. It's probably not going to be helpful. Uh, if you've got chunks and you've got uh, significant obstruction, then uh, there may be uh, something that's going to be required, uh, uh, but obviously that's going to be done in the operating room. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, is there any evidence to support bronchilobosphorus with saline or sodium bicarb? No, what, what they've found is is that the fit normal physiologic response to those acidic um, Materials is that first is that uh, the body's going to quickly neutralize those acids. The chemical burn's already going to be there, okay. and and so adding bicarb is not going to help. And the materials rapidly distended throughout, and and there is some risk uh, that you're going to spread material, especially chunks, to mm-hmm. other areas by trying to squirt uh, to lavage the lung. So there's no data to say that that that's going to be beneficial. Mm-hmm. If this patient requires ventilation to maintain their SATs, they're going to be needed. They're going to need to go to the ICU. They're going to need to put okay. on ventilator in the ICU. Mm-hmm. Uh, chest X-ray is probably appropriate. The biggest thing to remember is that a lot of the radiographic findings take a little bit of time to evolve. So that initial right. chest X-ray is probably going to be normal, and it may take six to twelve hours to see changes on a chest X-ray mm-hmm. uh, that are suggestive of, of aspiration. And what's the take on antibiotics? And antibiotics, initially, it's a pneumonitis and not a pneumonia. So, right. so probably uh, not indicated. Patient starts to develop signs of infection, uh, mm-hmm. sepsis. Then you're going to think about antibiotics. You're going to think about uh, antibiotics cover oral floor because that's going to be the most likely source mm-hmm. of, of this infection as, as opposed to a typical pneumonia. Right. Uh, so we're going to think about oral antibiotic in a patient who exhibits evidence of, of sepsis, uh, otherwise not indicated. Mm-hmm. Use of steroids, probably not indicated. There are folks who still, if you review the literature, some mm-hmm. folks who say, you know, it may be worth a try, but uh, the data is not strong to support that. Mm-hmm. So it remains controversial, huh? Yep. Well, thank you for breaking it down so nicely. Um, this is one of those conditions where suctioning becomes so important than ever before, and uh, you need to have an ET tube handy in your room if possible. I think we're ready to discuss our case scenario. So again, this case is from a published case report uh, from anesthesia, 
it is modified slightly to make it more relevant to us. This case will highlight key points essential for prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of MSS aspiration during anesthesia. A four-year-old boy with 18.2 kilogram of weight was scheduled for an elective surgery of phrenectomy. He was born full-term with no medical history, no allergies to food and drugs, and no abnormal results on blood examination. He has a history of nasal bone fracture repaired when he was three months old with no perioperative complications. He had a usual amount of dinner the day before surgery from 7 to 8 p.m. without any digestive discomfort. He fasted more than 12 hours before surgery. After completing his perioperative fasting period, which was confirmed by his mother to be more than eight hours, he was transferred to the operating room at 8 a.m. He received no pre-medications. When he entered the operating room, he was not anxious or agitated. The fasting time was verified by his statement once more. He was monitored with a non-invasive blood pressure, pulse oximetry, and EKG. Following induction with 100 milligrams of IV theopental and injection of 2 milligrams of susceptibilium, continuous breathing ceased. Upon beginning uh, manual ventilation, food secretions and flu-like materials began to discharge from patient's left nostril. He then vomited 200 mL of food he had ingested the day before surgery. The vomitus consisted of rice, kimchi, seaweed, and orange, and was whitish, pinkish, and blackish. Cyanotic changes were observed on the patient's face, and his O2 sets dropped to 60%. The surgical team immediately changed his position from supine to right lateral and head down tender lumbar, and food materials were suctioned from his nose and oral cavity. The airway was immediately secured with an endotracheal tube, and the remaining food materials were removed through that tube. After these actions, his O2 sets increased to 98 to 100%. Coarse breathing sounds were auscultated in both lung fields. Using fiber optic bronchoscopy, a small volume of the remaining gastric material was removed from patient's trachea and bronchi, and patient recovered spontaneous breathing. The surgery was canceled. He was transferred to ICU with endotracheal tube. So that was part one of our case. We're going to pause here and discuss what happened. So in this case scenario, patient was ASA1 with no specific medical disease and did not report symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, constipation, or any of the related digestive disorders before surgery and implemented the fasting intervals. Yet, there was an unexpected vomiting and subsequently undesirable aspiration of gastric contents. So what happened? So, you know, again, as we've talked earlier, there's right. no guarantees that uh, NPO status uh, is going to uh, guarantee that there's not anything left in the stomach. Now, again, this is a long NPO period. I think it'd be gone, as was suggested earlier, that sometimes clear liquids up to two hours may improve gastric emptying. So maybe when this kid continue on clear liquids up to two hours prior to his surgery would have been beneficial. That's a good point. Elective surgeries, you would think that uh, there would be much less occurrence of aspiration than emergency surgeries. And this being elective surgery, you had the op op opportunity to uh, making NPO. Yeah, I'll suggest that that. Maybe the emesis or regurgitation and aspiration occurs at a little higher rate, actually, in elective surgeries than emergency surgeries. And maybe that's because we anticipate that we're dealing with a full stomach and we do all the things that we need to do to prevent that aspiration from occurring. So uh, as you look at children, uh, ASA 1 and 2, uh, the reported instance is about 1 in 8,000 patients for aspiration. 
and and so that's a little higher incidence than what we see in in adults. Mm-hmm. And so just from a age standpoint, he's a little more risk. The guidelines, as we talked, can't guarantee that that he's going to be MPO, and. You know he's not at increased risk for aspiration based on his on his history. So doing pharmacologic things, uh, we're probably not going to do those in anticipation of, mm-hmm. of this. And so this is one of those things that, that sort of came as a surprise. It's one of those those things that uh, we always have to be prepared for, but didn't by history and at least by the physical exam given here. You know the other thing probably drug wise, this is obviously an older case, biopentol probably would have used propofol, which is mm-hmm. at least less emesis and, and maybe has some anti-nausea effects. Uh, so uh, maybe less of a chance that this would have happened. But but as, as the history goes on, then, uh, then it becomes more apparent as to why this, this occurred in this patient. Mm-hmm. Could we have done anything differently to prevent aspiration in this patient? Yeah, as... You do a good uh, history and physical exam. Again, in this patient, there was nothing to suggest that this patient had increased mm-hmm. risk for reflux or aspiration. And so I'm not sure that there's anything significantly different that I would have done other than maybe encourage the MPO to clear liquids up to two hours prior. Mm-hmm. And some of the signs of aspiration here were dropping of oxygen saturation down to 60s and he became sanatic. And obviously the fact that he had stuff coming out of his mouth and nose is also mm-hmm. a, tale, a, a dead giveaway that this patient's got stuff mm-hmm. coming up from bad places or going to bad places. Uh, and they did all the right things by yeah. putting the right level into the condom for occlusion. I guess um, the earliest bronchoscopy was also in a small position here, right? Yeah, because this kid, obviously, as as you looked at what was coming up, as they described what was coming up as the, the patient had regurgitation, there were large chunks of a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, and so there, there's certainly risk that there is uh, potential for part, large particulate stuff to go into the airway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and obviously, that's what they found when they did the bronchoscopy on this kid. So. In a day-to-day situation, you've got to either have somebody available who could do bronchoscopy. And obviously, we're not going to have that in our offices, but that is something when somebody's not getting better, that they may need to do a diagnostic bronchoscopy to uh, right. uh, rule out that there is particular material. Okay, so let's uh, discuss part two of this case. So after being transferred to ICU, patient had a fever of 38.2 degrees Celsius, but his body temperature returned to normal after receiving Tylenol through rectal insertion. Blood exam and radiography were performed immediately as soon as the patient arrived at ICU. Patient had leukocytosis with white count of 17, uh, mnemonic infiltrations in both lung fields, and paralytic ileus findings were observed on radiography. Antibiotics consisting of cefotaxim and clindamycin were administered intravenously, and an NG tube was inserted. Nebulized normal saline with epinephrine and salbutamol via endotracheal tube for 10 minutes was administered to improve respiratory symptoms. Head of bed was elevated to avoid gastric regurgitation and help lung expansion and chest physiotherapy to facilitate clearance of secretions were performed. Therapeutic fasting was applied and total parenteral nutrition with 17 kilocalories per day was administered for adequate nutritional support. The patient was sedated with intermittent fentanyl injection intravenously been agitated or hyperactive during intubated state. On hospital day one, patient was extubated after showing stable breathing and 50% oxygen was delivered by a venturi mask. On hospital day two, patient began to sip water 
On day three, the patient was allowed a soft diet. He showed no specific symptoms related to digestion and normative bowel sounds were auscultated. On follow-up chest radiography, mnemonic infiltrations on right middle and lower lobes were improved and patient was transferred to general ward. Hospital day five, intravenous antibiotics were replaced with oral and he was discharged with instructions for outpatient follow-up three days later. After being discharged, he had no digestive or respiratory symptoms except for a brief fever. Chest radiography was taken a month later with no active lung lesions on either lung fields. I'm glad that I don't have this type of <laughs> every day. Come on, some complex cases here. Yeah, for sure. So what could have been some of the causes of emesis after seeing that part two? So obviously seeing the paralytic ileus, uh, is that a causative factor or is that the result of everything that happened? It's kind of hard to say, mm -hmm. but um, but certainly that would uh, account for why he still had the large volume of particulate stuff sitting in his stomach mm -hmm. uh, that could have caused the, uh, the regurgitation and the aspiration. So typically when you think about ileus, you, you think about uh, surgery, especially abdominal surgery, uh, s severely ill patients. Certain medications can increase the uh, uh, incidence of ileus and uh, uh, infection, uh, electrolyte imbalance. So there are a number of causes of ileus. Mm -hmm. So a patient who has subacute ileus may not have any uh, digestive symptoms or they may not be easy to pick up. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a small possibility that, that this could have been caused by bag valve mask. Again, it, it was when things started, so it's probably a lower mm -hmm. chance that, that it could happen, but that's certainly a concern anytime you uh, assist the patient's respirations with a bag valve mask right. since you're blowing uh, uh, air into the, the stomach, which could increase the chance of that happening. And I don't know how true this is, for, but for a kid this age, it could even be stress-related. Possibly. Um, Ileus, maybe just because you're probably nervous about getting surgery. What was the management after? So, a bunch of stuff here. So, this kid uh, obviously required ventilatory support, had a fairly significant aspiration event, post op films to follow his resolution of his mm -hmm. aspiration, and then the fact that he developed a fever, leukocytosis, was treated with uh, antibiotics to cover primarily oral flora. So, it progressed from an aspiration to an as aspiration pneumonitis to an aspiration pneumonia. What else could we have done? Uh, obviously, obtain cultures to narrow the uh, spectrum of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, even after all this, I don't know what we could we would do differently next yeah. time. I guess he could get you know, know those medications. Physical exam uh, again, an ileus. Uh, how long do you not hear bowel sounds for before you make the decision that yeah. this is uh, this patient's got an ileus? But at least. Uh, as part of the physical exam, you auscultate the abdomen, checking for normal bowel sounds. May uh, may absence of bowel sounds are significantly decreased. May make you think, but again, I, th I think in a healthy kid coming in for elective procedure, if I can explain why I have the ileus pre so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you have any last words on this topic? No, I, I just think that. Um, it's it's important uh, to be prepared to deal with aspiration. It's not a real common event. Emesis in the recovery room is more common, but we're getting patients who are abundant, so we need to be a, a, a manage this potentially catastrophic event. And patients will lie, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> and uh, over the years, as I say, everybody has a uh, coffee and donut story of, of somebody who said they didn't eat, and then afterwards they they did they tell you they did eat. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've had cases where uh, they 
told the staff that uh, they didn't have anything to eat. And I walked in and I confirmed that they didn't feel and I said, well, I did have a donut or I did have a bowl of cereal this morning because I always take a bowl of cereal with my medicine. So, so uh, always have a high index of suspicion. You know, patients sometimes will get up and they do their morning routine and their morning routine is to eat when they take their pills. And so they eat breakfast, take their pills, and then they don't want to cancel because they eat and they know that you're canceling the surgery if you tell them. You know, we always emphasize when anybody asks, you know, what would happen if I eat something? You could die. Uh, right. you could die. And most of them then That's become the come, <laughs> come clean and let you know. But, right. but patients won't always tell you that. And uh, uh, so you always have to be prepared for that. You need mm-hmm. to have the throat suction available uh, at close at hand. And uh, this can potentially get out of hand very quickly if, if, you're, not, uh, uh, if you're not prepared for it. Mm-hmm. As it was a lot of the medical emergencies that we could potentially deal with. Yeah. And as always, keep your staff ready as well. Um, make sure everybody's on the team knowing what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, once again, great discussion here on Oral Max Facts with Dr. Jimmy Harper. Uh, thank you for subscribing to our podcast. If you enjoyed this talk, please help spread the word. Tell your friends about it and follow us on Instagram on our page at Oral Max Facts, spelled as O-R-A-L-M-A-X-F-A-X as one word. We'll be back next time with another topic in anesthesia complications and management. Until then, goodbye. Thank you.